Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you did bring it today, I ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, listen carefully as I read this entire chapter this morning from God's holy and inspired Word. For I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The word of the Lord. 
Well, we've come this morning to the conclusion of this extended section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians that is dealing with the subject of Christian liberty. You probably noticed during our scripture reading that the concluding verses of chapter 10 bring us full circle to the issue that Paul began to address way back in chapter 8 about the buying and the eating of meat offered to idols, a divisive issue that was generating a great deal of controversy and heat in the Corinthian church. Paul has been carefully and methodically constructing an argument over the course of these three chapters, and last week we concluded our message with Paul's vivid illustration of the Christian life as a marathon and as a boxing match. At the end of chapter 9, we read these words from the Apostle. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Surprising, even shocking as it may sound, Paul speaks in these verses about the possibility of being disqualified from the Christian race. And last week, you may recall, we related these sobering words of the Apostle to a Christian doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. Although it is true that all Christians sometimes stumble and fall along the pathway of faith, at times we can even quit running for a time and take a few steps backwards. It is also true that genuine faith in Jesus Christ will not be extinguished from the believer's heart or that genuine Christians will drop out of the race completely and fail to cross the finish line. Although we do not believe here at Rosedale that it is possible for a genuine believer to lose his salvation, we also affirm the Bible's teaching that true believers in Jesus Christ will persevere to the end of the race that those who fail to do so demonstrate they were never saved to begin with. Although some people do believe that Paul Paul is using the word disqualification to speak about a loss of reward in heaven or about a lost opportunity for Christian service, I'm of the conviction that Paul is speaking here about something far more serious And part of the reason why I've come to that conclusion is because of what we now read and study in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to pick up on this concept of disqualification and he's going to warn the Corinthians, it is indeed possible to think you are saved, to think that you are on your way to heaven, even to go through the motions of obedience for a time and to demonstrate in the end that you are never truly born again to begin with. This, I believe, is the point that Paul is making in chapter 10. And as we work our way through this inspired chapter, we're going to see how the concept of disqualification fits into the larger subject of Christian liberty that brackets this entire section. Here in this chapter, Paul is going to begin by giving us a historical example of disqualification from the Old Testament. Then he is going to warn us about a number of sins that will lead to disqualification if they are not forsaken. And finally, he is going to give us some practical application on the subject of of Christian liberty. And so with God's help, that's where we're heading this morning. A history lesson that's rooted in the Old Testament, a warning against unrepentant sin, and some concluding application about the limits of our liberty in Christ. Let's look first of all at Paul's history lesson in verses 1-5, to and let's take a moment to reread those verses. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all drank, ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. As we work our way through these opening verses dealing with the history of ancient Israel, we're going to see that the apostle is drawing a very intentional comparison between God's covenant people in the Old Testament and God's covenant people in the New Testament. And Paul is going to describe in these verses a number of incidents from Israel's past that demonstrate the tremendous blessing she enjoyed as God's chosen people and the terrible depths to which she fell on her way to the promised land. And as we'll soon discover, Paul's sobering point in this historical illustration is to show us the enjoyment of God's blessing does not guarantee that we will reach the finish line without being disqualified from the race. At the end of chapter 9, Paul recognizes disqualification as a very real possibility in his own life and ministry. And if the Apostle Paul could make a statement like that about himself, it should open our eyes to the danger that you and I face if we take our eyes off of the prize, if we allow unrepentant sin to gain a foothold in our hearts and lives. Well, the first spiritual benefit our forefathers enjoyed on their way to Canaan was the benefit of being under the cloud. And of course, if you know your Old Testament Scripture, you will know the cloud is a reference to God's supernatural guidance and protection as He led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and guided them through the wilderness. According to the book of Exodus, a pillar of cloud led the people of Israel by day, a pillar of fire led them by night. Visible, comforting reminders that God was with them, that God had not forgotten about them in their wilderness journey. But that's not all. The second spiritual benefit mentioned here is the fact, by Paul, is the fact that Israel passed through the sea. That is a reference to God's supernatural protection and deliverance of this nation. You may recall from the book of Exodus, after the Israelites began their journey out of Egypt, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He began to pursue after them in an effort to recapture them and to re-enslave them. And in working your way through that narrative and reading it, you can almost imagine the terror that must have filled their hearts as they looked in one direction and they saw the army of Egypt bearing down on them. And then they looked in the other direction and they saw the Red Sea blocking their path of escape. In this moment, Israel was in a desperate situation, but once again, God intervened on their behalf. He parted the Red Sea so that the people crossed on dry ground while the Egyptian army with all of their horses and chariots drowned in the midst of the sea. This was a remarkable event in Israel's history. It reveals to us the mighty power and protection of God who is able to deliver and to redeem His chosen people. Paul goes on in verse 2 to tell us, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Probably this is the most confusing part of Paul's teaching in this chapter because of the fact he is not using the word baptism precisely the way that we use it today. In the New Covenant Church, baptism is a sacrament or an ordinance that visibly signifies our salvation in Jesus Christ and that also seals God's saving work upon our hearts. 
Although water baptism does not save us or wash away our sins, it is a very meaningful symbol within the Christian faith that illustrates God's saving work in the life of His own children. The fact that through Jesus, we have been brought safely through the waters of divine judgment and He has raised us up by grace from spiritual death into spiritual life. The word baptize literally means to immerse. And just as you and I in the New Testament church were immersed in water as a sign of our union with Christ, so the Israelites of old were in a sense immersed in the cloud and in the sea, those visible tokens of God's redeeming work in the life of the nation. And just as you and I in the New Testament church have been baptized into the Lord Jesus as the mediator of a new and better covenant, so the Israelites of old were in a sense baptized into Moses as the mediator of the old covenant. Paul's manner of speaking in these verses may seem a bit confusing to us, but in order to understand what he's driving at, we must recognize that God's historical dealings with Israel are types They are shadows that point forward in God's redemptive plan to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the Christian church. Here in verse 2 of our text, Paul is using sacramental language. And that way of speaking continues in verse 3 as he tells us that all of the ancient Israelites who'd been redeemed from slavery ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. In historical context, Paul is referring here to the manna. He's referring to the quail that God graciously provided for His people in the wilderness. He's talking about the fresh water that came out of the rock to sustain them and to quench their thirst. In the Old Testament, God provided a spiritual meal to sustain His people in the desert to remind them He was their covenant God. And the same thing is true for you and me in the New Testament whenever we gather around the Lord's table to partake of the bread and the wine. It is spiritual food. It is spiritual drink. It speaks to us of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And not only does it speak to us and symbolize those truths, it seals the truth upon our heart. It nourishes our faith as we run the Christian race. Verse 4, Paul speaks about the supernatural provision of water from the rock, but even more remarkable is what he tells us in the second half of that verse. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You know, during Paul's day, there was a popular Jewish legend that the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness actually moved around and followed the Israelites through their wilderness wanderings. It seems as though Paul is referring to this Jewish legend, but adding to it the biblical truth that the rock from which the water came was a type of Jesus Christ. It was a symbol of Jesus Christ. You may remember that when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, He initially asked the woman for something to drink, but then turned the tables on her and told her she was the one who should be asking Him for water. And although the woman didn't understand at first what Jesus was talking about, we know that Jesus was in fact referring to the water of eternal life. In John 4.13, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Friends, just as God provided life-giving water for Israel as they made their way through the desert, so now in the fullness of time, this same covenant-keeping God has provided the water of eternal life for anyone, for everyone who will repent of their sin, who will embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Paul's emphasis here in the first five verses is on the tremendous blessing that national Israel enjoyed in the Old Testament. Types and shadows that point us forward to a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament church. And before we move on from these verses, I want you to notice the Apostles' repetition of the little word all. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Five times in this text, Paul repeats the word all to emphasize not merely the blessing that extended to the nation as a whole, but to to each of the individuals that were made up that nation. All of them were tremendously blessed. Each and every one of them. But nevertheless, verse 5 tells us, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Perhaps that is the great understatement that Paul makes in this text, since we know that of the two million or so Israelites who were delivered from Egyptian slavery, of the two million that were sustained by God in the wilderness, only two men named Joshua and Caleb were permitted by God to enter the promised land. And of the two, one of them was a Gentile. Caleb was a Kenizzite. The rest of the people from that generation were overthrown in the wilderness. They were disqualified from the race. In this text, Paul is reminding us of a tremendously blessed people. They were given everything they needed to cross the finish line successfully. They had everything they needed to enter the promised land. But instead, they ended up wandering around in the wilderness and dying in the desert. An entire generation that was disqualified due to their sinful rebellion against God. And if we are reading this history lesson from the Apostle Paul and wondering what relevance it has to the church of Christ, the answer comes to us in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, friends, not only does God's historical dealings with Israel point us forward in time to fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament church, God's historical dealings with this nation function as a stern warning for you and for me as members of that new covenant community. A new covenant community that is even more richly blessed than our Jewish brothers and sisters who lived in the old covenant and who never lived to see the coming of the Messiah that they hoped for. This chapter in 1 Corinthians is not a slap on the back for those of us who are blessed by God. It is a warning for us who are blessed. And we would do well to take the warning to heart this morning since it is clear. Not all who begin the race of faith will end up crossing the finish line. Tragic as it is to think about that truth, there are indeed many people who have made a public profession of faith in Christ Many people who have gone through the waters of believers' baptism. Many people who commune regularly at the Lord's table. Many people who have enjoyed the fellowship of God's people. 
who will eventually depart from the Christian faith through disobedience and will thereby prove that they were never genuine Christians to believe with. This is a very painful truth to accept. But it is a biblical truth. It is a biblical truth. Don't take my word for it though. Listen to these verses. 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Hebrews 3.14 We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In 1 Timothy 4.10 we read about a man named Demas who was one of Paul's colleagues in the work of the Gospel but who fell in love with the present world and was disqualified from the race. And finally we have the words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? We'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The perseverance of the saints is not a doctrine that was invented by the Protestant reformers. It is a doctrine that is taught very plainly in the Scriptures. It is a doctrine that the church must recover in our present age when there is so much shallow and counterfeit Christianity. In the modern church, we have convinced ourselves that a person is saved just as long as they intellectually agree with a few historical facts regarding the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not realizing the devil and all of his demons believe these things too. Do you know that the devil believes he's a sinner? The devil believes that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. The devil believes that Jesus rose from the dead. The devil believes that all those who repent and believe in Christ will be saved. The devil believes that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The devil believes every single article of the Apostles' Creed to the smallest detail, but yet the devil is damned. The devil is on his way to hell. And not to show us, Christian brethren, salvation is not intellectual assent to a bunch of facts. It is a turning away from sin. It is an embracing of Jesus Christ. And how tragic to think that right now, There are thousands of people all across this land. There are thousands of people all across this world who are sitting comfortably in their church pews thinking that they are saved. Thinking they are on their way to heaven. When in fact they are in rebellion to God. They are walking down the broad road to hell. Little wonder that Paul the Apostle will later on tell the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are truly in the faith. He does not say examine yourselves to see whether you've repeated the sinner's prayer. He says examine yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. Have you repented of your sin? Have you embraced Jesus Christ by grace alone through faith? This is not a trivial issue, friends. This is a heaven or hell issue. This is a sobering text. 
and it provides a much-needed corrective to the shallow, superficial teaching that permeates so much of the evangelical church that assures people that they are really saved when in fact they are in grave, grave danger of disqualification. Here in the opening verses, Paul demonstrates from Israel's history, spiritual blessing does not guarantee that we will cross the finish line. And now in verses 6-12, to Paul is going to continue his history lesson to unveil several sins that will lead to disqualification if they are permitted to fester in our lives, if they are not repented of and forsaken by those who call themselves Christian. The first of these sins that will lead to disqualification if it is not nailed to the cross of Christ is a sin of idolatry, as we read in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Once again, Paul is pointing back to a notorious event in Israel's history shortly after the people had been delivered from Egypt and led safely through the Red Sea. God had summoned Moses to go up onto Mount Sinai and to receive the covenant. And during his 40-day absence on the mountain, the Israelites began to complain and to grow restless. Having just witnessed the miraculous power of God with their own eyes, a group of them came up with the brilliant idea that they should make a golden calf to worship and somehow they were able to convince Aaron to build it. And as you probably know from the book of Exodus, after Aaron had finished building the idol, the people held a wild party in honor of their new God that included eating and drinking and unrestrained sexual sin. The Bible says that they rose up to play, and that, by the way, is a polite way of saying that they had a full-blown orgy. And when Moses heard what was going on in the valley, and when Moses came down the mountain, he was filled with a righteous anger, and he executed God's judgment on the people. He ground up the golden calf. He made them drink it before putting them to death with the sword. Pretty heavy stuff. In the ancient world of Moses and of Paul, idolatry was most often associated with the bowing down to a man-made statue. But we shouldn't conclude from this that idolatry is a thing of the past and we no longer need to worry about it today. Defined more broadly, idolatry is anything in our lives that takes the place of the one true God and becomes a higher priority than seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Very often, the idols we struggle with today in our culture are not terribly insidious things that seduce us. Rather, most often, they are the good things in our lives that we turn into ultimate things. And so, for example, work is a good and gracious gift from God. But if work becomes the most important things in our lives that defines our identity, work has become an idol that we worship. Something we look to for significance in contrast to God. Marriage and children are good gifts from God. But if they become more important to us than God, we have fallen prey to idolatry. Same thing can be said of a whole host of other good gifts. Money, possessions, vacations, food, sex, entertainment, hobbies. Even ministry can become an idol. Anything in our lives that usurps the rightful place of Christ is an idol. 
John Calvin wasn't far off the mark when he said that the human heart is a veritable idol-making factory. As Christian men and women, the temptation to turn away from God to some form of idolatry is always with us. It is part of the, and part of the Christian walk, part of our discipline as athletes in the race is identifying the idols in our lives and smashing them to pieces through the mighty indwelling power of God's Spirit. Idolatry was one of the sins that led to Israel's disqualification in the wilderness. But Paul goes on to tell us about a second related sin. In verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Here in verse 8, Paul is referring to yet another incident in Israel's wilderness wandering that's described in Numbers chapter 25. Once again in this story, Israel had fallen into the sin of idolatry. They had begun to worship the false gods of the Moabites and to commit fornication with the Moabite women. The text tells us that in this instance, God's anger was kindled against His people. He sent a deadly plague that killed 24,000 Israelites before a righteous priest named Phinehas took action and executed God's judgment with spear in hand. It is a gruesome reminder from the Old Testament that our God takes sin seriously. He will not turn a blind eye to sexual immorality, whether in the Old Covenant or in the New. Brothers and sisters, over the course of this past summer, we have spoken at great length about God's design for sexuality and marriage. We have spoken in tremendous detail about mankind's perversion of this gift of sex. And although sexual sin is not an unforgivable sin, it is, I believe, one of the most dangerous and pervasive sins of the North American church. It is an area of our lives and our corporate lives where we are tempted to make unacceptable concessions and compromises. Justifying sin. Acting like the unsaved world so that we will not face the condemnation and the ridicule of the unsaved world. And I'm absolutely convinced, Christians, when we play around with sex, and when we pretend that it is not really that big of a deal, we are putting God to the test. We are setting ourselves up for His heavy hand of discipline to come down. Let's not forget what Paul has already taught about this subject back in chapter 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, Paul says, were some of you. Or Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, sexual immorality must not even be named among you as is proper for saints, for you may be sure of this, Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Christian friends, if sex has become an idol in your life, if sexual sin has become an acceptable part of your lifestyle that you are no longer resisting through the power of the Spirit, Paul's words need to sink deep into your mind and heart. We must not, 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And so let he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying to his 21st century North American church. Paul sternly warns us in these verses against idolatry. Paul warns us against sexual immorality. And now in verse 9, he warns us about putting Jesus Christ to the test. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The historical incident in view here comes from Numbers 21 verse 5 where the people of Israel began to speak out against God and against God's appointed leader saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Even though God had been more than faithful to feed His people day in and day out with manna and with quail, with fresh water from the rock, spiritual food, spiritual drink, the people of Israel are still complaining. They are still rebelling like a bunch of spoiled brats until God reaches the limits of His patience. He sends a plague of serpents into the camp. Friends, although the God that we worship is a long-suffering, patient God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, our God is also a God of judgment and tremendous wrath. And if we think that we can test this God, if we think that we can tempt Him forever, if we think that we can sow the wind and not reap the whirlwind, we are only fooling ourselves. The Israelites discovered the bitter fruit of testing God. We Christians would do well to learn from their example. And then finally, Paul warns us about the sin of grumbling in verse 10, a a reference to a fool named Korah who began to grumble against God's sovereignty, who began to incite rebellion against the spiritual leadership that God had ordained and put in place. Idolatry, sexual immorality, putting God to the test, grumbling against God. These are the sins that disqualified Israel in the wilderness. These are the sins that prevented the vast majority of the people from entering the promised land of Canaan. And if we recognize, Christians, that Canaan in the Old Testament is a biblical type for heaven in the New Jerusalem, we will immediately recognize what Paul has in view when he speaks about disqualification in this chapter. Paul is not speaking here about a loss of reward. Paul is not speaking about a loss of opportunity for service in the kingdom. Paul is speaking in this text about a failure to enter the kingdom itself. He is warning us about a danger of failing to reach our final destination Failing to reach our final home. Well, Paul has now come to the end of his history lesson. He's now ready to apply this Old Testament lesson to the New Testament church. Verses 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 
Although it's Paul's teaching here in this section of text could stand alone all by itself, we need to remember this stern warning is part of a larger discussion on Christian liberty. The warning that Paul has just issued here in these verses is primarily aimed towards the stronger brothers in the Corinthian church, those men and women who are exercising their liberty and demanding their rights in such a way that they were placing stumbling blocks along the pathway of the weak. And it would seem that these stronger brothers in Corinth had grown very proud. They had grown very conceited as a a result of their theological and ethical knowledge. Like the Israelites of old, they were well aware of the spiritual blessing that God had poured out upon them in Christ. Perhaps like the Israelites, they had started to take those blessings for granted, to think that they had already arrived, to think that they were beyond any form of danger that could blow them off course, could take them out of the race. Spiritual pride, spiritual arrogance had blinded the eyes of the stronger brethren. And Paul takes an opportunity to warn them in verse 12 that pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Like what John MacArthur says about this verse in his commentary, he writes, Christians who have become self-confident become less dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit and become careless in their living. As carelessness increases, openness to temptation increases, and resistance to sin decreases. When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think that our spiritual life is the strongest, that our doctrine is the soundest, that our morals are the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent upon the Lord. Very wise words from Pastor MacArthur that get to the very heart of the issue. As a Christian believer grows in his knowledge of the Word of God, he will naturally grow in an awareness of his liberty in Christ. Now this is a good thing. This is a desirable thing. But it also carries with it an implicit danger, and that is the danger of spiritual pride. Knowledge and theological precision are necessary for growth and maturity, but knowledge can lead to a swelled head Knowledge can lead to a puffed ego if we are not bringing that knowledge under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if we are not vigilant as we grow in knowledge and an awareness of our liberty, sinful pride can take up residence in our hearts and it can show itself in a lack of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But not only does it do this, sinful pride in our hearts blinds us to our vulnerabilities and it convinces us of the lie that we are strong enough, that we are wise enough to make it on our own. And when we arrive at this stage, we are in the greatest danger of stumbling to the ground and falling off the path. That is why Paul wants this, what Paul wants the stronger brothers of Corinth to understand. It's what he wants us to understand. Paul doesn't want us to walk the same destructive path that Israel followed in the wilderness. Paul doesn't want us to fall prey to unrepentant sin and thereby to suffer disqualification. And so after warning us sternly about the danger at hand, he tells us some very good, some very encouraging news. And this is a breath of fresh air that we need to hear in otherwise heavy passage. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Brothers and sisters, temptations and trials are bound to come in this life, but the good news in this text we need to hear this morning is that our covenant God remains faithful through it all. The good news we need to hear today is that no temptation, no struggle that we face in this life is completely unique. Many of our brothers and sisters have gone through the same things and have come out the other side stronger than when they first went in. You know, sometimes God calls us to go through trials and troubles in this life that seem impossibly difficult when we're walking through them. Sometimes the temptations that hit us seem as though they're irresistible. But the truth of God's Word we need to hear this morning is that our God is a faithful God. He is faithful to see us through the temptation. He is faithful to provide a way of escape so that you and I as His children can endure it. Christian believer, never believe the demonic lie that you are a slave to your sins, that you are unable to resist temptation, that you are unable to overcome destructive patterns of sin in your life. Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit is living within you, you already have the supernatural power of God that will enable you to say no to temptation and to remain faithful to the Lord. And that truth should be a great encouragement to Christians, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. Because the fact is, none of the disqualifying sins that Paul has warned about need to take us out of the race of faith. God will give us the ability to say no to temptation, and if and when we do fall into these sins, God will give us the desire to repent, he will give us the desire to get back in the race, to keep running to the end. The perseverance of the saints does not mean that we need to live the Christian life in our own strength and in our own effort. It's a reminder that the God who saves us by His grace also keeps us in His grace. And that covenant-keeping God will enable all of His elect children to keep on running to the finish line. We know we're only halfway through this chapter. There's an awful lot we could say about the remaining verses, but I want to move through this material quickly because we've covered already many of these principles in past weeks and because Paul is going to have more to say in the next chapter about the celebration of the Lord's table. Beginning in verse 14, extending to the end of chapter 10, Paul brings us full circle to the original issue of eating meat offered to idols and he nuances some of the teaching and principles that he has already given the Corinthians in chapter 8. Although Paul agrees with the stronger brothers that an idol is really nothing but a block of wood or a piece of stone, Paul also recognizes that behind those false gods, behind those pagan religions, is a very real spiritual power that comes from Satan and his demons. The idol is nothing. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, the demonic, there is a demonic power behind the idol that is very real. And that's something that the stronger brothers in Corinth did not adequately realize. 
Although Paul affirms here in chapter 10 and in chapter 8, Christians have the liberty to eat meat that has been offered to idols. It would seem that some of the stronger brothers in the church were taking that liberty to an ungodly extreme. They were actually going to the pagan temples and they were taking part in religious rituals where the meat was being sacrificed. And so Paul now tells them in chapter 10, this is something they absolutely must not do. To buy the meat in the marketplace is one thing. To eat the meat in someone's private home is one thing. But to participate directly in a pagan ritual, to eat the meat in a temple, in a religious setting, is something different. It's what Paul calls here, drinking the cup of demons. Eating at the table of demons. And here in this section, Paul is going to show the Corinthians it is a contradiction to partake of the Lord's Supper and then to head down to the pagan temple to dine at the table of the devil and his demons. Really what Paul is doing here in the second half of chapter 10 is placing biblical limits on the exercise of liberty, helping the Corinthians understand context is crucial when it comes to the exercise of our liberty in disputable things. What is good and right in one set of circumstances may not be good and right in a different set of circumstances. If the meat is being purchased at the marketplace, if the meat is being eaten at someone's private home, Paul's advice to the Corinthians is very simple and very practical. It almost makes me laugh. Paul says, just eat it. And don't ask questions. Don't ask questions that you don't want to hear the answer to. But if on the other hand, the meat is being eaten in the context of a pagan ritual, or if eating that meat will cause one of your weaker brothers to stumble in sin, Paul's instruction is also very simple and straightforward. Don't do it. Don't eat it. Sometimes it's okay to eat this meat. Sometimes it's not okay to eat the meat. And here in the concluding verses of chapter 10, Paul's teaching on liberty is beautifully summarized. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, this is really what the Christian life is all about. Worship happens here on Sunday morning, but worship is not limited to what we do on Sunday morning. Worship is 24 hours a day and seven days a week. This is the reason why God has chosen in His sovereign grace to act from eternity past in order to bring you and to bring me into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The purpose of our salvation, the purpose of our liberty, is that we might use our liberty to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, too many of us Christians view liberty as a means to satisfy our own self-centered desires by living as close to the boundary line as we possibly can without plummeting off the edge. But according to God's Word, Christian liberty is a gift from God. And God has given it to us that we might love Him, that we might glorify the God who redeemed us from the pit so that we might love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so Christians, instead of experimenting how close to the boundary we can get without falling off, we should be seeking to use our freedom to glorify God, to extend His kingdom purposes here on the earth.
brothers and sisters, in the week ahead, whether we are eating or drinking or working or enjoying fellowship with one another, whatever we're doing, let's make sure that we are doing it to the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors because that is what God has put us on this planet to do. Amen.